0: Welcome to Bad Dogma, the podcast that looks up the skirt of the universe and uses the sands of time as a bridge from the present to the future. Now, your hosts, who rarely knows which dimension they're in most of the time, Chris Solak and Mark Rasmussen. And welcome to Bad Dogma. I'm Chris Solok, along with Mark Rasmussen. I'm here. It's always good to uh, be back. And tonight, today. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. We're Oh excited. my gosh.
1: Oh, we're excited. We we've got been a talking doozy about for this you. for a while. We right? got a doozy for oh, yeah. you. Yeah. Ever since this idea came down about bad dogma, we we've been excited about this gentleman coming in. Just yeah, spend this is, a little time. With we're
0: us. blessed. We're blessed to have him come on the show tonight. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. And the uh, I Steve, we got Steve Hupp on the show. Steve, with the docuseries that was on Vice, we were you the host? Were you the the facilitator? How, how, did, how, how did you guys – I don't know what to call you in that respect.
2: Basically, uh, I wore a lot of hats during that, but basically I was the chief shaman. They called me the host, but, uh, you know, it was a big ball of mix that you know i don't even really know what title i would want you to call me in the series but to me i'm just steve steve you know, see, and that's, that's how i roll
1: just yell steve and you'll answer right that,
2: uh, you can holler late for dinner and i'll answer. come
1: on now come there on that's is. me that's
2: where i grew up too there you go
0: don't miss dinner and it's that's that re- it. and it's it. steve it's that relational aspect that that transcends that it did you right. get you get to reach people on on such yeah. a relational level like that's, that's most cool. people are so used to religious hierarchy yep. uh regardless of faith or belief system and and you 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 guys get into such messy things in such a hurry <laughs> people people have to trust you guys in a hurry right uh it, it's it's what do you find just stepping into that 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 relational moment with people to to just kind of get down on the level with them like do people, are people standoffish or do they embrace that quickly?
2: To be honest with you, they embrace it really quickly because of that's my awesome. past. I have a very dark past. There's not much they can't talk to me about. that, And they understand there's no judgment. You know, you can talk to us about anything. And we're going to try to work with you and get you to progress. Either progress out of the situation that you find yourself in or progress into a situation that's more to, how would you say, in your realm of control, your better said sphere of influence. Um, I find that we must establish immediate rapport. And, you know, that's one thing that my team is very good at. They're very good at coming in and making you feel comfortable on a one-on-one level. We don't even sit around and call ourselves shamans and shamanistas. You know, we like to engage with you. Hey, I'm Steve. This is Terry. You know, this is some of where we've been, our medicine people that work in our ceremonies all come from dark backgrounds, if you will, heroin addiction, institutionalization. So when we're talking to you about things, this ain't stuff we've read about. This is things that we have lived through and have come out on the other side.
0: So with that in mind... With that in mind, Steve, just to, to be able to give the listening audience some some background, and I, and I want you to, if you don't mind, taking it back to your childhood, what was it like for you growing up and, and evolving as an adolescent in, uh, in Kentucky in the 70s?
2: Okay, the first I would have to really give you a foundation of how I grew up. I have to tell you a little bit about my parents. I was born real late in their life. My nearest sibling is 16 years older than me. Oh, wow. And so my dad was born in 1918. And my mom, she was wow. born nine years later, about 1927. So these people had lived through the real Depression. Yep. You know, they were Depression era. My dad had his back broken, a coal mine cave in mm. when he was 18 years old, told he would never wow. walk again. And when he was at 20, when he was 27, he was a volunteer at the Battle of the Bulge. So, you know, this is some of the tough stock that I come from. Wow. And, um, and I was raised hardcore, you know, my dad was going to teach me what got him through some of the hardest times in his life. And one of those things was he was going to make sure I was a very proficient hunter. So he had me hunting and, and doing everything that entails with hunting from the time of five years old you know and these were very important things to him now to me as i got older i i wasn't really hip on standing in the woods at four in the morning to shoot an animal i really didn't want a gut why because my grocery stores were full i never had to worry about starvation like he did but you know what when the mm-hmm. pandemic came and i'm just running around making sure i got toilet paper I couldn't help but think of him and all the things I needed to remember that he taught me early in my life. But anyway, growing up with these kind of hardcore mindsets, you know, my mom and dad were not religious at all. They never went to church, but they always made sure that we had the opportunity to go if we wanted to. I chose not to. My sister, who is 16, the only sibling I have, she's 16 years older than me. She's a very devout. Christian, and I applaud it. You know, because I'm not against any religion. I think they were all put here to teach us something. I think there's threads of truth in every religion. You know, one time I, I'm gonna, I'm kind of digressing. Back to my childhood, and then I had my leg broke. I was hit by a car when I was seven years old, and I was in a, a traction for thirty days, a body cast for two months, and that was probably my first near death experience if you will and what i mean by that was i had some really lucid dreams while i was in the hospital it felt like spirits because i was born so late in my people's lives i got to watch a lot of them die if Mm. you will because they were old when i got here and so all these things kind of helped shape what i would call my foundation of atheism um You know, uh, my dad's teachings to me and what I seen in nature, because he always had me in the woods. He always had me out here. And that and that's where I learned. I learned in the real world, you know, common sense ain't so common. But back then, if you didn't have common sense, you probably weren't going to live a whole lot longer. And what I mean by that is we weren't riding bicycles with helmets back then. You know, we didn't use safety gear. And if you were stupid, nine times out of ten, you either got bad hurt or you didn't make it. And that's just the way it was. You know, when I was born, my mom was probably had a cigarette dangling from her lips because everybody smoked in the hospital. So I came out probably addicted to tobacco, my right off the rip. And a lot of people came through these same circumstances. But, you know, there was always this part of me that I loved adrenaline. I loved it from a kid. Back then, you know, it was nothing for them to take, I call him. I call my little internal self, Little Stevie. It was nothing for them to take, because that's what they called me around all the adults. I was always Little Stevie. And it was nothing for them to say, here, Little Stevie, have a drink of this, you know, and it'd be a shot of liquor. You know, there'd be times mom and dad would have a party, and heck, I was running around drinking it from everybody's drink anytime they weren't looking. Now, back then, you know, these things were... Just is, if you will. You know, it wasn't that my mom and dad, they were law-abiding people. Never had a traffic ticket. Never had a problem with the law. My dad was a decorated veteran out of World War II. And here I am, 17 years old, staring, looking at a judge. And he's telling me, hey, dude, if you go get, uh, you know, go join the military, we can squash this juvenile record. And I had a little bit of trouble going on then. But so I joined the military the day I turned 17. And I am 55 years old now. So, you know, this this was probably what back in 1982. And back then it was a different military, man. It ain't like today where you got a stress card if they're cussing at you or they're making you feel uncomfortable. Back then it was hands on. You know, they'd smack the crap out of you. They'd get up in your face. So this is what really started. And then we started hash okay it was we were running hash from east germany to west germany and this got me really kind of going the criminal way if you will i always held a job but this is why i was in the military and in europe now back then we didn't have terrorists if you will we had the ira blowing car bombs i mean you know you didn't have special words for them the wall was still up we still had the soviet union as a threat and all these things going on. And here I am. I'm at that time. I'm probably about 20 and I've Fell into this little cartel of people in the military, and we were running hash from the east side to the west side, selling it to the GIs on the border, selling them psychedelics. So I've always had my hand into the drug war, but that was before it was really declared the drug war. Sure. I remember sure. when all that started off with Reagan and everything, and it's like from then on, I always felt that I was under attack. I always, to be honest with you, if they'd have just let me smoke my weed, I'd have never probably broke a law. But because I had to be a criminal to work with plant materials in that I found very beneficial from marijuana to hashish to acid to mushrooms, that's really, it was like, well, if I'm going to have to behave like a criminal, I might as well be one. And that's where I kind of got my start on the dark side.
0: Well, that's a jump. that is a jump, though, Steve. To, to to come to the conclusion that, well, if I've got to, I've got to be treated like one, I might as well just become one. That's uh, that is is that where the adrenaline kicks in? Is that where the idea and the excitement kind of starts to entice you to to step over that line and to cross into things that are a little less reputable? I mean, it's a little different than just passing a little hash around, you're, you're, you're talking about now crossing the line and, and, and potentially committing felonies, correct?
2: Oh, absolutely. We were committing felonies. You know, we were using our military IDs to get through Checkpoint Charlie, wow. you know, and uh, yeah, we were, we, were, we were committing real world crimes. That's how we got caught. Uh, CID, Criminal Investigation Division of the Military, got on to us and they infiltrated with marked money. And seven of the people I was working with, you know, we didn't even call ourselves a gang. We didn't think of ourselves as a gang. We really were just having a damn good time in Europe.
0: Just opportunists. Opportunists. It was a lended opportunity, if you will.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and, and plus we were helping out our fellow soldiers. You know how boring it is to always to guard a border, you know, when you can't even You know, look at the people across the way without creating an international incident.
0: Staring at a wall day after day. Yeah. Day
2: after day, hour after hour. You you know, it it was so peaceful just to be able to get high while you did that. Wow. You know, to have that mental break. But, you know, the other side is we like the money. We like the women. You know, there was, you know, we were young and dumb. And didn't really take into what we were doing until CID come in and five of us went to Leavenworth, you know, for periods of 10 to 15 years. I fortunately, because I was so young and I got in at the tail end of the game, they really didn't know about me till the end. And I mean, I was escorted out of Europe with an armed guard.
0: You just got you. This is a pattern in your life, and we're going to continue into this. This is a pattern in your life that uh, that there's this hand over you, no matter where where you seem to go. Um, so so you get escorted back to the the states. I'm a uh, I'm assuming there's a discharge involved.
2: Yeah, general discharge under honorable conditions. Uh, <laughs> that's what that's what I agreed to. That's what I got out. I did about three and a half years in the military at that time of discharge. I discharged out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina.
0: But an honorable discharge, nonetheless.
2: Yes, it's an honorable discharge.
0: Man, I, I know a lot of people who have done far less that have gotten a dishonorable yeah. discharge. So, I mean, that's 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 amazing in itself yeah. to me, but maybe that's the time
2: that... Well, what it, what it was, I got busted in Fort Carson, Colorado with a pipe by a drug dog, okay? But my battalion commander loved me so he put it on back then. What it was called was your restricted microfish. In other words, because I had a secret security clearance, the only people that could get to that microfish without my permission was an act of Congress. Wow. So he buried it. Now, when I got busted, when all this jumped off in Europe, I decided I'd been there about 18 months, 19 months. I decided I, I was done with this shit. I was done with the military. Um, so, hold on i got a message coming up there we go um i was done with the military i was ready to get out so what i did was i filed for that restricted fish and because they they had a fake urinalysis analysis on me because one of them they said was negative and then they popped me with a positive just to bust me in rank because they were trying to get me to snitch they were wanting the rest of the suppliers sure and what they didn't know at the time was we didn't have a like you would today you know it wasn't like it was brother bill or bob or whatever these were turks in the red light district you'd have to go down there at a certain time and they would just literally step out of the shadows going smoke gi smoke and they would pull out thousands of grams this was on this side of the border room at the end because i quit doing the east west thing wow
0: that's incredible
2: and I sent for that fish to end this story. Forgive me, I digress. And that and that at that time that guaranteed that they had to discharge me because I was an enlisted man with two drug busts. And See, so I kind of shit house lawyered my way out of the military.
0: Amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. I mean, and this is <laughs> this is just the beginning, Steve. Right. This is yes, the beginning of this is, this of is it.
2: exactly the beginning. And you're right. There is always this element in my life, okay? And I mean whether I'm addicted to the adrenaline, it's just it's just part of who I am. You know, I love doing this ayahuasca. You got to realize how crazy it was for me to start this shit. You know, the last convict to play with psychedelics and people was Charles Manson.
0: Right. You got to right.
2: understand that my government considers me a domestic terrorist. To get out of prison, I had to give blood to three different federal agencies and get put on three different DNA data banks. So now here I'm coming out here. Now, the one who was really brave in all this is my wife. Okay, she was my first boss coming out of prison and. But she's not a, you know, she wasn't no criminal. She was a woman with three kids. She, you know, here I'm coming. She met me coming out of prison. So somewhere I fucked up pretty bad. Oh, excuse me. I messed up pretty bad. So, you know, she has no reason to have this kind of confidence in you. And can you imagine coming home after she was working in a restaurant As a manager, and you come home after an eighty-hour week, and I got plant materials all over the kitchen. The whole fucking house stinks. I (laughs) mean, it stinks to high heaven. And I'm looking at her, going, "Baby, I know this sounds crazy, but this spirit told me if I can get this down, that we're going to build this church, and you know, it's going to be a phenomenal success. Did I mention it's going to make people vomit and shit their pants? (laughs) It it, it, it tastes horrible, you know. And and yeah, this is going to work out because. (laughs) Because this spirit I met while I was tripping told me. And, you know, so to make a long story short, her bravery in this was even greater than mine. But then, you know, so this is kind of like putting up a website. It's a class one controlled substance. Mm -hmm. So I might as well be saying, hey, Steve Hupsling and cocaine at 2875 Lakeshore Drive, come and see me every Friday night. You know, the whole time I'm waiting for the SWAT team to just kick in my door. And I mean, it's, it's just crazy, but guess what? the spirits always were there. They were all, and I know this sounds so crazy, man. I think about my atheist days. And if somebody sat across from the table to me telling me this shit, I'd go, dude, you're so jacked up, you know, you, you, oh, yeah. what, pass yeah. me some of what you're smoking. Cause it's got to be the bomb, well, you know, because I mean, it's just crazy when I look back in the changes in my life and then think about the changes my wife saw, you know, she sure. fell in love with, basically a criminal because I was hardcore when I come out of prison. You know, I don't want you to think that I turned kumbaya in a cage because I didn't. Okay, It was a process for me, a very hard process. And just as it is for a lot of other people, you know, sometimes the internet portrays ayahuasca as, Hey, drink this and all your problems are going to disappear. No, a lot more questions are going to arrive and how you find the answers to that questions is really going to, Tell me how your your life journey is going to take off because it's going to be how you respond to what has been put in front of you.
0: Yeah, the ayahuasca is is really just the tool. It's the mechanism to to actually self discovery. It's it's not the it's not the focus. It's it's the gateway.
2: Exactly I, the okay. portal. Yes, if you will.
0: So so Steve, I want to I, I do want to I do want to understand your story from the the, the standpoint you you get. You you get out of the military uh, ceremoniously, but unceremonially, unceremoniously, ceremonially—I can't even say it right—but it's it's it's. But you but you you come out with an honor. You come yeah. Yeah, You come out honorably discharged, which is which is amazing, and and uh, and so, you know, you're sitting around. You're no longer in the military. How do you start robbing banks?
2: (laughs) Okay. This. I didn't start robbing banks till probably 10 to 12 years after that point in my life. Okay. I come out of the military. Um, I work with my dad as, a, as industrial maintenance for uh, several years. I'd worked with him in my younger years. He was always a mechanic, a welder, and all these things. And Then I started my own material handling business, and I met my first wife. My first wife is from Canada, and I met her in Florida because when I came out, I went to Orlando to make a long story short. Her dad was in the aircraft business and he owned this jet. He had put this jet together. You remember the movie hot shots? Yep. Well, it was, it was going to be a stunt jet in that movie. And on the way to California from Florida, he goes down in this jet. Well, because she owned the jet, because being married through me, she's an American. Guess who gets sued? Wow. Wow. And, so this started, you know, this started another era in my life. I went down to Miami, and then guess what blew on shore after that? Hurricane Andrew. I went through Hurricane Andrew. I stayed down there and worked, helped to, you know, recover. And That's how I moved out of that phase of my life. Uh, Long story short, on the aircraft, 30 years later, it finally gets resolved because of all the shell companies that Hollywood has in place, protecting itself from lawsuits. I could do a whole nother show on just that part of my life. But let's move ahead. Now then, let's come to Robin banks, okay? Now, I was in Miami during that time, and that was also during the cocaine cowboy time. And my penchant for drugs and adrenaline kind of led me into some major players there after Hurricane Andrew because we worked on their house, got to know them, seen their little mirrors and their railroad tracks, that kind of stuff. So we were kind of playing in the coke game after Hurricane Andrew. I finally, I put cocaine down because I watched too many of my friends lose everything they had, and I just stopped doing it. But long story short, now let's move ahead. Mom and, my mom and dad, they're getting elderly for whatever reason in their life. They decided they wanted to leave Florida. They come back to Kentucky. I come back to Kentucky kind of to help them, but also because I wanted to get my family out of Miami, which was at that time a very violent place. Long story short there, I helped my mom and dad as much as I can. I started off as a long haul truck driver because they moved to a rural area of Kentucky where there was really no jobs, but there was an interstate. So that's where I took truck driving school and then I became a truck driver. Now, while driving rig. That allowed me to go all over the country. And a lot of times in a semi, you're invisible, especially in industrial areas. And it came a point in time that I was absolutely, it was probably about eight years in my mom and dad started having strokes and heart attacks. My wife at that time's got, th- we got three small kids. Their ranges in ages from seven all the way down to three. So, my wife isn't working. She's a stay-at-home mom. I'm driving 48 states in Canada, and my mom and dad's health starts taking a shit, and they they're going crazy. Some of these strokes were mentally debilitating. My mom and dad are really having a real weird time in their life. In other words, I had to come off the road. I robbed the first bank. I'll be honest with y'all. I told myself I'm only going to do it one time. I was terrified. And it was scary. But you know what? You get past five bank robberies, you ain't scared no more. At least I was. But long story short, I started robbing banks, trying to stay at home, trying to help my mom and dad. But I also have to admit, I was hoping that I could do enough money that somehow in my jacked up head, I was going to make enough money to save them from old age. Because in my immaturity, I didn't really see that this was a path I couldn't divert. This was, you know, and I made a very poor choice in my priorities. Uh, I want to word this correctly because I put my mom and dad ahead of my family. Otherwise, I never would have robbed banks. You know, now I say this now, but at the time, there was no way I could make that line up. I thought I was doing what was expected of me. I wasn't going to let my mom and dad go into a nursing home and I was going to do everything I could to make sure that didn't happen. But the reality of it was when I went to prison, they went to a nursing home and guess what? They got through it. So Mm -hmm. I didn't change anything, but anyway, that's how I got started into robbing banks. And then from there, you know, I did it for quite some time. Um, I pled guilty to two banks. I was suspected of thirteen. The real number was seventeen.
0: Sneaky. That's so so to understand that your motive, your motivation, now however however misguided, you, you were so you were robbing banks to help your folks.
2: Yes. They had prescription bills, you know, uh they were just To me, it was just, you know, there was no other way out at that time in my narrow view of the world. And the other side, I liked it. You know, the other side, I was angry. You know, I was angry that my mom and dad were going through this shit. It didn't seem like there was any help available at that time. This was probably back in 1998, you know, 97. Don't quote me on the time without my notes. You know, this was at a time when there was less health care out there than there is now. And the doctors were incredibly confusing. I didn't understand strokes. I didn't understand nutrition. I didn't understand the value of how to exercise them. I and even if I would have understood all those things that I do now, I still wouldn't have stopped old age from doing what it did. They were a product of their choices.
0: And, and the and the reality is, is that that we're we're all gonna we're all going to pass. There's so many of us that I think that we 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 talk about this the 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 philosophy that we somehow can cheat death uh, is is unfortunately each one of us will pass that threshold at some point and and so it's especially when you're younger the idea of mortality is I, I think much scarier than it is as you progress through life at least for 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 some people I know some people live with that fear all their lives but it's but it the more life experiences you you accumulate, so so here you are. I mean, you're 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 you early thirties. It sounds like that's a, trying to get, and and you're you're doing this to help your folks, and then in a, in the middle of this, you're getting you're also and you're speaking to this. You're getting the rush out of it, and I know you're living fast too, because because if you're doing it for the adrenaline, then that's got to build into your philosophy of the way you're living your life as well.
2: Well, you're living in the now, right? Okay. That was the one, that was the one time without knowledge. I was really living in the now because every day I walked out of my house, I was expecting a SWAT team to either kill me or put me on the bricks. You know, every, every meal that I ate, I treasured because every day I thought this could be the last steak I get, you know, and As screwed up at that time as it was in my life, you're 100% correct. I was also loving the lifestyle. I was loving having a pocket full of $100 bills and doing anything I wanted when I wanted. I also loved spending time with my kids that I hadn't while I was driving the rig. You know, I got to coach them in Little League Baseball. So there was all kinds of, how would you say, positives to this lifestyle that I had created.
0: We're going to take a break right there. When we come back, we'll have more with Steve Hump, the Kentucky Shaman, right here on Bad Dogma.
2: Now back to the Bad Dogma podcast, your weekly dietary supplement of truth amidst the Twinkies
0: and Ho-Hos of the media world. And welcome back to Bad Dogma. We have Steve Hump with us, the Kentucky Shaman joining us. And Steve, you're just, uh, before we took the break... We're talking about uh, the the bank robbing phase <laughs> of your life and the adrenaline kick from it right um, and and then the, the the human the human aspects of why you mm-hmm. were doing it not just not just for the adrenaline rush but right. there were some there were real reasons involving family yes. and and even time with family as opposed to being out over the road driving a truck now all of that catches up obviously you're not robbing banks today so uh, take us there
2: okay. Um, to start you where I was coming out of prison, I have to touch on this sad part of that era of my life. I lost both my parents while I was in prison. My dad died 13 days before my release. Oh, wow. And they wouldn't let me go to the funeral because they considered me a danger to society. Yep. But 13 days later, I walk out of this Sally port and I get into a cab and nobody knows where I go. Now, at that, you talk about angry. Sure. I yeah. was so angry. And this is when my present wife met me because she was my first boss on the first job that I got coming out of prison, which was a steak and shake. I had never worked a restaurant in my life. Now, looking back on all this, this is the universe putting me in a cauldron of pain because it's getting ready to reshape me. But at that time, I am pissed. I am so pissed. I in fact I had a guard picked out that I was gonna snatch straight off the parking lot and take to a warehouse. And that guard was gonna be my messiah for all that shit. Wow. That's what wow. that's the place that I was when I walked out of prison. And I cannot even begin to describe the self-destructive anger that I harbored at that time. Then I want to put you in the place of a halfway house with less trained people, a lot of them just college interns who are lording over you. Then you got to get a humiliating job at a restaurant that you've never had to do. And anyway, this is where I'm at at this time of my life, but it's also the beginning of my odyssey because what am I learning to do in this restaurant? I'm learning for the first time how to cook. Now, I learned how to brew in prison because how I made my money in prison, don't re- remember, prisons just like society, you got to have money. <clears throat> and how I made my money in prison was I learned to brew hooch. And that's all this was leading to me learning how to brew ayahuasca because this is where I was getting my understanding in the chemistry of cooking. And Mother Aya wasn't gonna let up on me, whether I and I didn't even really know about her at that time. You know, I don't want anybody thinking in my story that I met this guy in prison and we sat in this two man cell over a matchstick fire, and he told me he enlightened me to the ways of Mother (laughs) Aya and ayahuasca and all the above. It wasn't like that. You know, he told me about ayahuasca, but he couldn't get it to me there. And he had to wait. And I I didn't even know what he was going to send me when I mailed him. So all this, this is chaos. And when I look back on it, every bit of it was putting me in a position where I had to make a choice. And that choice was, did I want to live a better life than I was building on my own? And, you know, I think, in some way, shape, or form, everybody gets to that place in life, that fork in the road. Do, is your way working or not?
1: Yeah, and yeah absolutely. That's through, it. That's go ahead. Exactly. I'm Forgive me. No, you're right on. We're just agreeing with you. That, we all have to come to that, that moment in that intersection where we realize, right, this decision is going to change everything or it's going to change nothing, right? That's, you're just one of those moments in life.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and that was one of my moments right there, because fortunately, my wife, who is a beautiful person with a lot of deep insight into a lot of pain herself, you know, she helped me come out of that really dark place in my heart. And I also had to come to terms with that. It wasn't the system's fault that I was in prison. It was my fault. One, it was my fault for getting caught. Two, it was my fault for not finding a better way. We are truly in a land of opportunity. No one has to rob banks. No one has to do any of that criminal shit. You know, you just have to refocus and find where something that benefits society and you. And, you know, and this is where ayahuasca come into play in my life. But you know what attracted me to it? Again, that hand that is me and the universe and chaos. I liked it, that it was edgy. You know, when I first started working with people, I didn't know if I was going to kill them or not because I'm doing my own bruise. I'm stumbling my way through this. You know, way back then, there was nothing on the internet. There was nothing to work with. And that's why the spirits taught me how to do this. But, you know, before that could happen, I had to come to terms with my atheism, you know, and how childish that mentality was. Because even though I'm not necessarily believing in the biblical God, even at this point, I I question it. But the reality of it is, if we ain't in the Goldilocks zone, if we're too close to the sun, we burn up. If we're an inch back, we freeze. Something intelligent had to put us there in that perfect zone. And I couldn't get around that even in my own atheism. And that was hard. And a lot of times I just turned away from it. I was lazy. I didn't want to try to figure the conundrum out. It was easy to say, I don't believe in nothing, but having fun, screwing women and making money, you know, and and that and but all those places were coming in a cauldron. It was the pressure that was creating the diamond that was going to create the church that was going to help bring ayahuasca to a lot of people in this country that desperately needed it.
0: So you're, you're, you're out of prison. You're, you, uh, you, I know, I know for a fact that you did have an encounter you just from past, past interviews and things that you've done. And of course your story, you had an encounter with, with a Peruvian shaman in prison, but that didn't, that didn't alter your experience. That just kind of gave you some context as you, Came out, correct? I wanted. To, I want to make sure we touch on that.
2: Okay, Guadalupe yeah, was the gentleman from Peru who, he was in prison with me because he had overstayed his visa, he had got caught, and he was being deported. And that's why he was in the federal prison with me. Now, what drew my attention to him was he had a different attitude about him, and I thought he had some drugs, and I was going to rob him. Because, you know, we weren't in a— two man cell at this time we're in a pod with a lot of people and i'm watching him and that's and so i'm trying to charm and disarm him and i ended up getting to know him and i realized he didn't have drugs he had a totally different outlook on life wow and he had a different way of approaching and all the above and so we would walk the track together we talked about many things you know it wasn't like he was training me for this Um, I don't think you can train a shaman I think a shaman is called I think they either accept that title or don't but once you do and you internalize it you know it's like a service dog you put this harness on And you allow the universe to work through you, whether you want to what verbiage you put on it. I don't care whether it's God, the universe or the unexplainable or the Taoism. It makes no difference to me. I just know that what I've seen happen, there's no other explanation for me.
1: And that's, that's what I like. You know, I was looking at your website earlier and I like the, the, the statement you made at the bottom after, you know, I read everything about what was on that page. You this quote is just, it speaks so clearly to who you are and why you do what you do. And it's, I will show you where to look, but I will never tell you what to see. That is so powerful because so many people want de- declare that they're some type of a signpost, but in reality, they're not a signpost. They're, they're a, um billboard, right? They're trying to push forward an agenda or something else. And and that just hit me when I was looking at your website as 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 the, the level of real that you've come to in the journey that you've had that you realize, look, all I can do is point the way.
2: All I can do is share with you what has worked for me and what we have observed working for other people, but you got to find your way with it. That's one of the first things we hammer home in the preamble of our ceremonies is we are not the healers. You must heal yourself. You know, we can give you all the information. We can give you the top notch ayahuasca, but if you sit there and go, I can't do this, guess what? You won't do it. You know, if you're not, don't know how to still yourself. That's what you said earlier before we started the show as we were talking. and nothing can be nothing is more powerful than stillness. And that is the one thing we have never been taught in our society is how not to move. Yeah,
0: yeah the last yeah. time that any of us encountered stillness in our educational system was kindergarten nap time. You know that's 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 the last time. Any time anybody was still, otherwise they're moving yep. you from this place to that place to the other place. They got to get you conditioned and ready for that job that you show up to at eight a.m. in the morning and you leave at three in the afternoon or whatever. However, whatever construct you you see that working as, uh, but but truthfully, rest and stillness are the two most. Powerful basis for for actually transcendence because in communication, if you will, with the other side, and and that's why it's when we live in a a six minute society, uh, and and it's shrinking day by day, uh, and I can tell you that one of the things I my wife was like, I I have two children under the age of two, and what are one of the things that you want to pass on? It's like the ability to be still, the ability to focus, the the ability. To, to, to concentrate and to connect openly uh, because uh, if your mind's running, if, you're, if, you're, if, if you can't be still, it's going to be very hard for you to number one, hear anyone else around you, mm. let alone uh, God or the universe, however you perceive that to be. right. And, and it's, you know, to actually transcend beyond this physical reality, which there's so much more beyond, this place. That's right. And, uh, and so stillness is so key. And I know we were talking about that before. I just to go back to something you were saying, talking about the personal responsibility and this is, this is to get into the process. You know, you, yes, you have to be still, but you also have to take accountability for oneself. And man, everybody, this is, this is, this is a, a philosophy that is permeating our society here in the West that, you know, uh, that everything is everyone else's fault. You it's know? easier to blame and, somebody and, else. And That's you right. haven't, you know, it's there, there is something wrong with you if you don't understand what's wrong with me. And, yeah. you know, how I'm just curious as people come in, do they understand that process or is that something you have to coach people through now? Because most people, uh, at least that I'm talking to, don't want to own where they usually get stopped is owning and having a sense of personal responsibility with their own free will decisions.
2: Exactly. And that's one of the things that we push really strongly in our ceremonies. And like you said, yes, a lot of the people we walk come into in their mind, they're clinging to this victimhood terminology. Okay. The moment you say I'm depressed, it releases you of all responsibility to get well. And, you know, we remind them That what is the one thing your brain is always seeking? It's seeking the familiar. And if all you've been familiar with over the last three to six months or year or four years is depression, then where does your brain go? It goes to what's familiar. So you got to give it something to be different than that depression. And you can't allow yourself to say, okay, well, I'm going to lay in my bed all day because I'm depressed. Well, let me tell you something. If you lived just a mere hundred years ago, do you think those people weren't depressed when they lost a child or a job or a home? But do you know what? They didn't have a choice. They had to go back to work the next day. They had to go engage. There was no shrink going, well, here's your Prozac. Let's try some lithium. Oh, your child's a little unruly. Let's let's give it a pill. Well, you know, let's call it attention deficit disorder. But, you know, the reality is that some of these disorders were your survival skills. You take attention deficit. That kept you from getting ate by the bear while you were picking berries because you were always looking around. You know, sometimes we have to raise our children and sometimes we have difficult children. And sometimes the smartest child is the hardest to raise. And, you know, we don't need to dumb them down and they're as you said they come in with all these self influenced excuses and the first thing we hit them with is you got to take responsibility for you we have two sayings written on the first room they walk into the intake room and the top one say, uh, the bottom one says today is the first day of the rest of your life now that's a powerful statement to say to yourself every day you wake up today is the first day of the rest of my life own them all the moment the top saying is from Buddha, and it says, pain times resistance equals suffering. You know, you're always going to experience pain in life, but if you resist the pain of life, you suffer. So suffering is optional. Pain is stimuli. How we work with that pain is what's going to determine what our life is going to shape up as. No pain, no gain. Exactly. Everything's been said. You know, that's some people come in looking for me to say something that's just directly from God, that God had been hiding from us. And it's all common sense. You know, it really is. But when you're going through the emotional pain and another thing we teach people is you got to think of your emotions as energy and motion, you know on. You know, anger is not a bad emotion. If I come home and somebody's raping my wife, I hope I turn into a savage in an instant. But in everyday life, anger is like taking a shot of poison and hoping somebody else dies.
0: Yes. Every every one of those human elements and, and emotions are programmed into us for a survival purpose or a functional purpose, yet there are inappropriate times to exercise them. And appropriate times to exercise them, and again, I think you talk about it so so much. Steve is is talking about someone who's out of balance. That you get people that are out of balance that they don't know how to compartmentalize who they are properly, and, and you got to get them, you got to get them leveled back out again.
2: Well, I'm glad you brought that up because as we were talking, what I try to teach them is first you got to achieve stillness. Because balance isn't something you achieve, it's something you maintain. Every day I'm maintaining balance. You know, every day I'm making mental adjustments, inner dialogue adjustments. And then there's times where my conditioning as a convict, a truck driver, a soldier, a husband, a father, all these things come into play too. But I've learned that I've got to separate the words, okay, rather than reacting I got to respond, you know, and, and some of these things have been taught in prison classes, parenting classes that I've taken and other things are just things I've learned stumbling my way through this earth for 55 years.
0: And that is our, that is our process. It is a, it is a stumbling, if you will, that, that, uh, people think that there is this perfect way to, to, to plan and execute life. Good luck with that. So we, so here you are, you're, you're, you're freshly out of prison. Your wife is your boss, which I'm not even going to go there. That's a whole nother thing. We'll leave that for she another episode. We'll just I was leave just going to say <laughs> hey, nothing we'll changes, <laughs> does it, Steve?
2: Remember, I told you she's here, so yep. she still is. <laughs> oh no, we're going to talk to Terry. We're going to yeah. talk
0: to Terry in, in a little bit here for yeah. sure. But 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 uh, to 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 understand, you, here you are. You're you're cooking, which is uh, a gate. Here's a potential gateway into the gateway, and and so everything's ultimately connecting but when is it that you start connecting with the other side
2: yeah the other side i I truly believe that it was already going on it just i did not recognize it sure you know Mm -hmm. um then i mailed out a I had hundreds of addresses of criminals. You know, you got to realize I'm getting letters from professional criminal crews. Hey, dude, fly into Houston, armored car. We got it all set up. We just need one more dude. Ah, the temptation. That. Yeah, I'm making minimum wage at this time at this lousy third shift restaurant job. I got people offering me million dollar heist. And here the universe is laying the tracks. OK, which what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I got three kids who's screaming at me, wanting me to make up time and money. I got an ex-wife. I can just go on down the list. And you know what? I I made the right choice, but it was the hardest choice of all I had to say. I want something different. And let's let's talk about this
0: for a minute because this is something that people yeah. do not understand yeah. when it comes to the transcendent life. Yep. Come on. That there man. is always a crossroads and it involves mm-hmm. temptation and it's it's interesting because uh it doesn't matter whether you go with say the Christian narrative with Jesus and the three temptations or or here you are you're entering more of an esoteric track the temptation is still there for you to have to make the free will decision, uh, which way your life is going to go. And, and this, I mean, can you just talk about that? Because you're dealing with people constantly at the point, the knife's edge of this, of this decision place. That's, that's one of the reasons you all exist is because you're actually giving people that decision and, and guidance, uh, as, as they come through it. But, but what you had to go through, you didn't have anybody uh, directly from what I understand, you didn't have anybody helping you other than... The, the the spirits that were guiding you themselves.
2: Yeah. At that time. But like I said, I didn't recognize this. Okay. You know, at all I'm looking at at that moment, you know, I'm like, man, what, if I get mixed up with these people, I really don't know if they're going to kill me or not. You know, because it, who knows? Sure. You know, we weren't friends in prison. We were acquaintances. You know, I didn't meet you because I wanted to. I didn't smell your farts because I loved you. I smelled your farts because I was under the gun and in a cage. Right. And, you know, all these things play into focus, too. But you're correct. The temptation was there. Um, and I turned from it. But at the same time, I can't tell you I was clean because I would. child support was taking half of my little paycheck. Uh The feds were getting a little bit out of it for court costs and all the shit I put them through. And what I was left wouldn't even feed me. So I'm shoplifting, risking a federal prison sentence just to fucking eat. And, you know, so all this thing is, is, is a cauldron of pressure. And I, if I'd have made the wrong choice, I would have regretted it not only for this life, but for lifetimes to come. Sure. Yes.
0: Yeah, that's, and that's, and that's the reality too is that most people in the, in that decision don't understand right. the, the magnitude of, of that decision. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, and most people, it's, 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 it's an impulsive decision right. rather than a well thought through decision.
1: Exactly. And and it's a great distinction, I think, that we kind of pick up on here, too, that because, Steve, I'm sure there's a lot of people look at you and they look like this dude's got it together. Right. I mean, when they come to you, they're looking at you a little starry eyed, I I would imagine. Right. Because they're in a place where they're looking for help and you're providing an opportunity to help them with that. But you are so honest in saying that, no, you know, look, I don't have it all together. I'm still on my journey as well here. And this journey, you know, is a complicated process for each one of us. It isn't easy for me and hard for you. It's hard for all of us, right? Exactly. And, and, I and think there's no finish
2: line. Exactly. We're so conditioned yeah, in this go. country that's to look key. for a finish line. Yes. You and, know, mm-hmm. where right. the White House and the picket fence and the 2.5 <laughs> yeah. kids right. and the cars. Right. And, and you know, and that's the other thing that I learned in prison, not only through Guadalupe, but through other people, too. And that is the difference between happiness and contentment.
0: Uh, oh, come on now. Come on now. You're when I got married, Steve, when I got married, <laughs> this is the this is the greatest travesty of my life, okay? I turned to all these men with years and years of marital experience and said, Okay, guys, whip it out. What's your what's your advice? They every last one of them sold me out. One lie after another. Happy wife happy life that is the greatest misconception and lie that men tell one another when it comes to marriage and it was the simple truth and this is something i've come to understand and my wife and i we have a great marriage and the reality is is it is a content wife come on now if you want a happy marriage and and so my wife it's 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 one of those things and and it's not always the 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 house and the cars and right. the, she would tell you she's got more limitations in her life being married to me than she did when she was single, but it's it's to understand that it's what you bring to one another's life that should matter, not the crap, and so that right. you accumulate and so it's again it's what you what you pursue and and the way you perceive. Uh, these things that 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 often uh, throw us out of balance we have when we have an imbalanced philosophy and we enact it, then we end up with an imbalanced life
2: oh totally I totally agree, and we also anymore we don 't really understand the words that we 're using you know in our inner dialogue and you 'll hear me talk about inner dialogue mm-hmm. a lot sure. Yep. Yep. Because that's how we manifest that conversation Mm -hmm. we're having with ourselves. Well, and you
0: just the meaning of esoteric. Sorry, Steve, just for the for the listeners, means from within. Well,
1: from within. Yeah. So and and I use the term self-speak, same thing. You know, we all have a self-speak. It's you know, we're constantly communicating with ourselves what we believe we truly are and how we respond to situations. And, you know,
2: that forms who we present. Exactly. And that self and that inner dialogue, that self-speak. You know, that is what is going to determine what we're going to bring, manifest, what yep. the uni- what we're going to attract from the universe, because the universe is giving you what you want every moment of the day. You just have to be careful what you want. When I was robbing <laughs> banks and stealing cars, man, when I needed a hot car, all when I started thinking about it, all of a sudden there'd be cars all around me with the keys in the ignition. Wow, that's incredible. You know, yeah. This is how the universe works. It throws cooperative components all around you and it's up to you what you choose Boy, to I put like your energy into to manifest because we're in a free will universe. Oh, there you go. And that means that nothing can inhabit you unless you allow it. We teach people how to treat us. So if you don't like how the world's treating you, you need to teach it something different.
0: Yeah, if you don't like yeah. what's being said, change the conversation, right, Steve? <laughs>
2: Exactly, and if you don't like what's being said, you got the opportunity to leave.
0: Yeah,
2: you know that's the beauty of free speech. That sometimes people can say things that other people don't want to hear.
0: Imagine that. Imagine that.
2: And it's you know, go ahead. I'm sorry, Steve. Oh no, no, and you know, back to that balance thing and stillness, you know. I get out of balance, man, a hundred times a day. And then I bring my mind to my breath because I learned in prison my brain could only think about one thing at a time. And my breath is always with me. And four or five little deep breaths, even in traffic, just I can plane straight out. I can come back and achieve balance and once and maintain it. It's a maintenance kind of thing. And that's, you know, a lot of these people they that do come to us. They've never been taught any of these techniques. And to be honest with you, I never would have been taught them either if I hadn't gone to prison. And the system didn't teach me, the inmates and the convicts did.
0: Wow. That's, that's an interesting statement right there. That it wasn't society, it wasn't religion, it wasn't even a belief system. It was pr- the prison, uh, and I want to say the prison society, because there are some very unique laws that exist within prison and, and they're, and they're unique to each institution as well. And so again, you, it sounds like you ended
2: up in the right place in the right right time. And there was no other way to get there. And it was a cauldron. You know, my first indictment read 40 years with no parole. I thought my life was over and, and, Through the federal system, and I beat state court acting in my own behalf. Then the feds pick up my case. But through all these things, I'm learning to see the unseen. I'm learning to feel the vibrations of the room, of the courtroom. And I acted in my own behalf, even in federal court, told my lawyer to sit down, and I talked directly to the judge, and I went from 40 years to 33 months. (laughs) again it's it's like another honorable discharge right exactly exactly (laughs) exactly but at this time you know i'm thinking oh you know in my egotistical mind and here's (laughs) another thing i want to put out there to your listeners and that is we don't believe i believe in ego transition i believe in ego integration And and that's what I have been shown spiritually. That's what I've been shown in the ceremonies for many years. That we have to integrate. See, this whole process here on this earth is about becoming whole. And to become whole, you have to accept every little dark cranny that exists in your in your sphere. You know, the reason that our eyes are in front is is because we're predators. I'm sorry, Nate. That's the way it is in nature. And that's the way it is with us. And that's the first part of it. your nature. You have to accept that you have predatory instincts and predatory desires, even if they're unspoken.
0: Yes, Yeah. absolutely. And, and it's, it is when you deny those things that people all of a sudden do sporadic and crazy things. It's, well, it's the delusion
2: contained that builds pressure. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's and the, when you're stuffing it and trying to put on this face that I'm good, I'm this, I'm that, well all you're doing this stuff is building, man. I've watched tens of thousands of inmates in the prison that I was at. And the one thing I learned was was if you achieve contentment you can be content in an unhappy situation. Come on. And that's exactly what helped me get me out of my dark place and make that choice to pursue this path was that lesson, but I had to get past my anger to see it.
0: Man, that's a perfect place for us to wrap up this episode, but we're going to come back with, with more Steve hump uh, later in the week with the, with the next episode. So Steve, hang in there with us. And, uh, and, and so, We'll, we'll conclude this show. This has been Bad Dogma. Mark Rasmussen, Chris Solok. Join us for our next, uh, next episode, uh, Part 2, with Steve Hump as, as we talk more with the Kentucky Shaman right here on Bad Dogma. Thank you for listening to Bad Dogma, the podcast produced by FBM Productions. Special thanks to our production team, Stephen Hudson, Marcus Bickle, and I'm Barry Hasselman. Bad Dogma, unveiling the truth one podcast at a time.